0: You've been so well-behaved until now, Timothy, but I might have guessed that something like that was going to get mentioned. So, yeah, okay. that's a complexity that you don't really need to bring into your life. <laughs> you are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Brain and the Brand Show, with Timothy
1: Maurice. Hey, guys, welcome to part three, the final episode of our Applied Neuroscience Masterclass series with neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart. I'm Timothy Maurice, and what a pleasure it's been to share in this series with Tara. She's one of the most delightful and general scientists you'll ever meet. And if you've listened to the first episode, you know what I mean. As an Oxford-educated former medical doctor who has turned her neuroscience training into helping leaders get the most out of their brains, we've been very fortunate to have her share this content for free. She not only lectures global leaders at MIT in Boston, Massachusetts, But you can go to her website www.taraswart.com to see more about her leadership coaching as well as read more about her latest book, The Source. And guys, try not to keep this content to yourself. Please share these episodes with two people you believe would benefit from understanding their brain better. In this final installment, Tara and I build on the first two episodes and explore five simple ways to apply the lessons from the series to help you optimize your brain power in order to perform at your highest level, particularly as you turn this page in history to begin charting the next chapter of your life. With all the environmental stresses we're facing, we wanted to end this series with strategies you can incorporate into your daily life starting right now as soon as you finish this episode. I encourage you, if you already haven't, to go back and begin at episode 1. We jump into this episode by speaking about the brain-body connection in episode two. Enjoy and stay tuned until the end because I have very special bonus content to share.
0: So I actually want to preface this by saying that you mentioned the brain-body connection in part two of the Podlet series. And I want to take that a bit further and say that physical, mental, emotional and spiritual health and wealth or capital are intimately connected. They all affect each other. Okay. And the one we need to start with, really, is the physical foundation. And so these five fundamentals um, are quite physical. But to have that higher executive function, part of your brain, firing on all cylinders, we need to have the physical foundations in place. We can't really be talking about mental diversity of thinking, emotional intelligence, creativity, unless we know that the, you know, the machinery is actually... Um, has all the conditions for okay. it to be successful. So I would say the first one is about resting your brain and your body. Okay. You know, um, we need to sleep for eight hours a night, seven to nine hours, they say. Um, when you wake up in the morning after a good night's sleep, you have a bucket of what I call cognitive resources. So your ability to think for that day.
1: Okay.
0: And the length and quality of your sleep and the consistency of that will be the first step in making sure that you're able to access your higher executive functions as well as possible for as long as possible throughout the day.
1: But, you
0: know, sorry, gum.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I see. That, I mean, this is critical. This is a critical point for me. Even if you are aware and if you are, have been working on it, if you don't have the amount of rest and sleep, you still may not be able to access that, that ability to control or expand or grow.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, they say that after a night of dis- disturbed sleep, you're operating on an apparent IQ loss of five to eight points. Now, most of our listeners would still be able to carry out their job perfectly well if they had like five to eight IQ points less than they generally do. Um, you know, that they've got access to using, but after a whole night's, a whole night's sleep disruption, like being on a flight or having a sick child, um, then the, in a population norm study, that IQ drops by one standard deviation, which would drop us all below normal IQ. And I know that, you know, with my traveling, if it's a significant jet lag time difference, um, you know, it feels like I'm sort of mentally confused. I actually don't work the day after a, a big trip because I can't handle figures and details in the same way that I can on a good day.
1: Resting your brain and body to be able to access control capacity is critical.
0: I think the second most important one is probably nutrition. So our brains only weigh two to three percent of our body weight, but the brain sucks up 25 to 30 percent of the nutrients that we break break down from our diet. Okay. So having a healthy, balanced diet, eating regularly, because the brain can't store the glucose that it gets from our diet for any length of time. It sucks it up immediately, uses it, and then the rest goes to the the bodily functions. But You know, I think that people realize that trying to eat healthily is good for your physical well-being. But imagine that a quarter to a third of what you're eating is actually going to your brain power. I don't think that people are thinking about that so consciously.
1: That's incredible. So if I eat like a bag of chips and that's it, (laughs) a quarter of those chips are going to, and that's probably not the best fuel to be putting in the brain.
0: No, because, you know, especially a bag of chips, it's like it's got those bad fats that you don't really want going to your brain, which hardens the cell membranes between, you know, membranes between our cells. So what you want to be doing is putting in lots of good fats and good oils and water rich foods. So, you know, obviously fruit and vegetables, but the avocados, the olives, the nuts, the salmon, the eggs, the things that have those good omega oils. Um, coconut oil is another. It re- has become so popular because it's literally like rocket fuel for your brain. There's evidence that, um, for 20 minutes after eating a spoonful of coconut oil, your cognitive ability is enhanced. So I just stir some into my tea in the morning and I'm kind of like, okay, I've had my coconut oil for the day. Got it. Um, so yeah, just, you know, generally good nutrition, but the regularity of it's important. Um, what you eat, eat in terms of brain friendly food is important. Things like green teas are good as well. Um, Actually, I'll save that for the third point, which is about hydration. But, yeah, the nutrition thing, it's really worth looking into. We have a couple of blogs on my website, The Unlimited Mind, on um, brain-friendly nutrition.
1: Point number three?
0: Point number three is related, so it's hydration. We need to hydrate the neurons in our system because um, if you're 1% to 3% dehydrated, then they can't send the electrical and chemical messages between them as efficiently. And that's when your memory and concentration and decision-making power start to suffer. By the time you're thirsty, you're way more than 3% dehydrated. So it's something you really need to work to keep on top of. We suggest half a litre of water for every 15 kilos or 30 pounds of your body weight per day. So, you know, that's anything from one and a half to three litres per day for the average woman or man. Yes, yes. Um, if you drink a lot of caffeine, you need to drink more water to make up for the water loss. If you're having alcohol, you need to drink more water to replace the water that you'd lose by urinating, um, because caffeine and alcohol have a diuretic effect on the body, so we lose water overall. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, that's such a small thing, but I'm I'm always shocked by how little water executives are drinking. I get my executives to do a food and drink diary for a week, and usually the thing we argue over is the the water consumption.
1: And to make it very clear, I think that, you know, you know, people have heard similar stuff for many years, um, even at school and so forth. But I think if people can see that before they go into a big presentation, before they go into a negotiating deal that's going to be highly stressful, that's going to, that's going to require so much of their brain that if they're not hydrated, they risk not being able to give it all to that exercise.
0: Totally. I mean, you know, I, I would never go to a coaching session without eating something first. I just, I feel like it's not fair on that person. Yeah.
1: Um, They're paying you know. for you to be your best brain to be there.
0: Exactly. Um, and it's the same with drinking water. I mean, it's, it's now the law in the UK that all school children must have water in their bag with them because we know about how it affects, you know, your brain's ability. Oh, and I wow. always say, yeah, why don't we have that at businesses? Why don't we have that at business schools as a, you know, it's routine.
1: So I think we actually need to roll out a plan particularly here in this part of the world to have water in before people go. I was in a workshop recently at one of the top law firms and I kind of felt like these people need water. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: know. I mean, well, law firms usually need sleep as well. That's true. Particularly guilty of not sleeping.
1: So number one was resting your body, uh, your brain and body. Number two is uh, nutrition and understanding that, you know, the fact that the brain is sucking up 20, 25% of your energy. Number three is hydration. Uh, Number four,
0: oxygenation so you know ideally we are not sedentary during the day and we're walking around and we're exerting ourselves at times and you know we're sort of you know taking some deeper breaths because of the activity that we're doing but i'm guessing that a lot of our listeners are just sat at a desk in an office for long periods of time and if that's the case then doing formal exercise at a gym or outdoors is you know it's it's um it's not better than being active all day but it's it's second best to that so if you do have a sedentary job try to do formal exercise um they say 150 minutes a week of raising your metabolism by two to three times um and so but you know and so glucose and oxygen glucose from the nutrition and oxygen from the exercise or just breathing are um the two main resources for the brain so you were just saying you know don't go to a high stakes meeting without drinking enough water and i was saying or without eating something but actually even just taking 10 deep breaths or doing you know, some kind of meditation where there is breath counting or deep breathing before a high stakes meeting will give your brain that extra oxygen boost. Oh, wow. Love it.
1: Love it. OK, that's okay. very clear. Let's move to point number five.
0: Have we done four? Oh, yeah, we've done four. <laughs> um, so point number five is really about simplicity and choice reduction. So our brain likes simplicity, but we don't live in a simple world at all anymore. Um, So, you know, we're bombarded with information. We're sort of on 24 hours a day if we want to be and if we can be. Um, So it's about trying to bring, you know, at times we want people to do the neuroplasticity thing and learn something new and go and explore and be curious. But at stressful times when there's lots of change going on, particularly change that you can't control, it's really nice to be able to control something and make it simpler. And even that even if that's just, you know, Laying out your clothes for the next day, the night before, so that in the morning your routine's a little bit more simple. Even if it's kind of just having the same breakfast every day at the same time, so that there's just that regularity. And, you know, when I'm traveling a lot, I always stay at the same place, you know, I always stay at the same place in Joburg, I always stay at the same place in New York, Oslo. Um, I just try to keep things as familiar and routine as possible when I know that the demands on my brain are higher.
1: That applies to relationships as well. I mean, if you're going to be dating different people, it could really cause a lot of <laughs> complexity.
0: You've been so well-behaved until now, Timothy, <laughs> but I might have guessed that something like that was going to get mentioned. So, yeah, okay. that's a of complexity that you don't really need to bring into your life. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. Sort of compartmentalize, and I have to say that for me as well, that I noticed that before I speak, like the, the night before, if I'm completely prepared... And like you said, everything is laid out and I know where everything is. I usually speak better the next day. I'm only sort of making that link now as you sort of describe this and and sort of compartmentalizing, having some people on your team who understand the demands on your schedule. I'm sure that could be extremely important as well, having associates, team members, assistants and so forth because this conversation is really driven towards um, influences and executives and so forth. So how important is it that your team are aware of all of this?
0: Oh, it's vitally important. You know, if I think about my own team, because obviously I'm out there talking about neuroscience and, you know, they know what I talk about and they, they know that I try to run my life and our, you know, the way that our team works based on some simple applications of neuroscience. So, you know, one of the things, for example, is that if I get too many emails during the day, then it's constantly distracting for me and I can't focus on a task. So particularly when I'm traveling a lot, we have an arrangement where, you know, they only send me one email a day at the end of the day. Oh, wow. um, yeah. And, you know, they're they're also very good about kind of creating a seamless travel experience for me. Um, and, you know, sort of giving me as much information upfront as possible to sort of, you know, manage any changes that might come up. It's, I mean, I don't do this, but it's the reason that Mark Zuckerberg wears the same clothes every day. And that you know, Steve Jobs pretty much did the same. So it's about choice reduction, yeah, and simplification.
1: Dr. Swart, is there any sort of parting shot that you have from your side?
0: Well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your personal neuroplasticity story the next time that we speak. Um, I love that quote. It's beautiful. I think that it's about choice. It's about being deliberate. It's about paying attention. And it's about being mindful. And, you know, that's actually all we can ask from ourselves.
1: Thanks so much, Dr. Swart. You're simply incredible. Please follow her on social media, especially Instagram, at Dr. Tara Swart, but she's also available on Twitter. As I mentioned, I have a little bonus content for you. Several weeks back, Tara and I discussed her latest book, so I thought I would share a little of that conversation. After you're done, please email me your thoughts, podcast at timothymaurice.com or tmw at timothymaurice.com You can book me there or just share random feedback. Enjoy this bonus content and thanks again for listening. It means so much. Until next time. Congrats on the success of The Source. I'm so, so proud of you. How many languages has it been translated into now?
0: It's actually now 36, which is incredible. I mean, I had no idea, like, what was a good number for that. But when it got to, like, 5, 10, 15, then my publisher, Penguin Random House in the UK, were like, wow, this is amazing. And then I think when it launched in the UK last February, it was over 20. Then it came out in South Africa in March and the US in October of last year. And, um, yeah, it just kept, kept climbing, and now it's at 36.
1: Wherever you are in the world, the brain is the same, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've all got one. And, you know, there's so much more we know that we can do with it now than we were ever aware of before. And I think, for various reasons, that's become much more interesting to people, whether it's, you know, whether it's um, resilient aging, whether it's neuroplasticity, um, whether it's kind of, you know, getting some more Zen and calm into your life, there are just so many reasons to want to know how you can make the best of your brain.
1: Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it seems that there could not have been a better time for your book to come out. Did you know something that we didn't know?
0: <laughs> um, I, I didn't know something about what's going on right now, obviously, because it came out in February 2019. So I was writing it like late 2017 to 2018. But I have to say <laughs> that whilst I was writing it, I did think, oh my goodness, this book is going to come out at like just the right time. And and actually, one of the things that I want to talk, you know, speak with you about, and I think is the reason that you contacted me now is actually what's happened since it came out has been just so revelationary for me in terms of, um, you know, merging that spirituality and science.
1: As a neuroscientist who practices psychiatry and does leadership coaching, mental training, how have you merged the sort of internal sort of spiritual and your scientific rigor how do you merge them into a discipline for yourself and for your clients
0: well like you I've always had that side to myself but for me I kept it very separate um you know I grew up in the UK to Indian parents and so I felt like the you know the things that I had to do within each of those cultures I had to keep them separate as a child that's how I coped with it um And then I went to medical school and I sort of kind of left the spirituality piece aside a little bit um, and really focused on the science. And then yoga became like a popular thing. And, you know, I really got into that mostly because my, my peer group, like, you know, not of Indian origin, were actually getting into yoga. So it felt like it was just like the thing that everybody was doing now. And I actually took to it really naturally. And I loved it, especially the meditation aspect of it and things. And then I suppose for me, you know, I had a bit of a sort of life change or crisis. I had a big career change. Um, I got divorced. And that's when I was really forced to return to that in a big way. Um, and so Then, you know, many, many years passed and I had this idea of looking into the science behind the laws of attraction. And, well, I must have somehow attracted this because I was the world's first neuroscientist in residence at a hotel in London, the Corinthia Hotel. And there was a lot of press about that. And then Penguin Random House approached me and said that they had books on sleep and stress and exercise and mindfulness. And they thought that I could write one that would encompass all of those things. And I remember saying, I could do that, but I have another idea. And they told me later, actually at my book launch party, that when I said I want to write about science and spirituality and the science behind the laws of attraction, they said we could have got the pen and the contract out right there and then. So, you know, like you said, it was a bit of a, a zeitgeist kind of moment.
1: I mean, you say early in the book that this was personal.
0: For me, somebody who's maybe been too used to keeping things separate. So, you know, had a very like strong work ethic and a very professional you know, my professional life was very professional. I would keep my private life out of it. It was actually a moment of huge vulnerability for me. And in a way, like if a stranger reads the book and the story of my life, that feels okay. But quite a few people that know me said, oh, I didn't know this about you. I didn't know that about you. And um, I think for me to have done that is probably like what the real spiritual piece is about. Just, you know, like kind of heart opening in a way. And then, like I said, since it came out, the response has been so incredible. Just you know, the messages I've had, the the stories of how, you know, people have done an action board or a vision board and changed their life or, you know, just the impact hearing the story of that big career change has had on people has really pushed me further along that spectrum from the science to the spirituality and made me feel like that's okay for, you know, your professional life to have a huge element of spirituality to it. It's not all about having a PhD and a medical degree and you know, being a professor at MIT, like these things are, they're all important. They all contribute to some sort of like leap forward for, you know, whether it's an individual person or society or humanity. So that's, you know, I've learned a lot since the book came out.
1: Oftentimes the sciences and particularly neuroscience can seem so sterile and cold and calculating. It, it felt soulful. It felt wonderful to read a book about the brain that was so soulful.
0: Oh, you put that so beautifully. And I, I can't tell you, every time I hear something like that, it just makes me so happy. And yeah, I think people have said similar things in different ways, but you've, you've put that just, you know, absolutely beautifully. Um So I, you know, I've loved neuroscience for a long time. I did my PhD 25 years ago and it wasn't, You know, it wasn't a subject that was of particular interest to people at the time. I mean, we didn't even have sophisticated scanning techniques. I was in a laboratory cutting up pieces of brain and making microscope slides. It wasn't as sort of exciting as it is now. I'm glad that you feel like I've put it like that in the book. But I think the whole subject has just become more important and not just important in a professional scientific way, but important to people's lives. Like life can be tough. And if you know that you've got the resources within you, to manage that a little bit better, that's actually a huge relief.
1: You opened the book with a quote by William Henley. And really, I mean, most people will know this quote, but I'm going to read the whole, a return to the source. And it reads, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What do you think keeps people from being the captain of their soul?
0: Um, I just want to say like, you know, just hearing you read that quote out again, that um, books are written in a funny way. So often you go back to the beginning once you've actually completed the you know the bulk of the book. And that preface and that quote, I couldn't reread that to do, you know, to do the sort of final version without crying so many times because it just... Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It just, because, you know, there was a time that I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of what people would think of me, afraid of making the wrong career choices, afraid of making the wrong relationship choices. And so I think that there's a lot of the weight of expectation, whether it's parental expectation, societal expectation, or just the standards you have for yourself. But, you know, obviously that's sort of entrenched into your brain through everything that you experience as a child. You know, it's a natural survival mechanism for the brain for us to be afraid of potential threats to our safety. That's a huge part of the book, which is you have to work hard to overturn that negative gearing of the brain that like you can choose to think abundantly rather than to live in fear or live on autopilot. Those survival mechanisms in our brain have been there for millennia since we lived in the cave. They're not relevant to modern life anymore. I mean, obviously, I'm not suggesting people take crazy risks with their work or their relationships, but there's a lot. there are a lot of steps that we can take that we don't take for fear of those smaller things like what people will say or like, you know, maybe like how much money we'll lose or earn if we make a certain decision. So it was really about if you understood the science of how that worked in your brain, that you could just be a lot braver.
1: You know, as a reader, the four parts of the book really does set you up for addressing this challenge. And the part one is science and spirituality. The second part is the elastic brain. The third part of the agile brain and part four is firing up the source. At what point did you settle on this structure? I know that as a writer at times, um, you can go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. When did you settle Mm -hmm. on this is the approach that I want to take with this book?
0: In a way, I'd like to make a metaphor between, you know, how that process occurred and how every, you know, neuroplasticity works in the brain, which is that our brains are being constantly moulded and shaped by everything that we experience. And so I started off over the summer of 2017 just researching the science behind the laws of attraction. Although, you know, I was interested in it and I thought this was a good place to start, I was quite surprised by how much science there was to quite easily back up the laws of attraction, something that has fascinated people for a long time, but has also been written off as quite woo-woo. So when I did that <laughs> research and I thought, okay, um, wow, this is actually this really makes sense from a cognitive science point of view. That to me was then the sort of spine of the book. But interestingly, because Penguin are very, very involved, they helped me so much. And they felt that alongside that, the vision board and the visualization aspect was something that was really interesting to people at the moment. And they seemed like things that, you know, you could really put together. So we, you know, we gave equal weighting to the visualization and what I call action boards, which are vision boards. But, you know, you have to do something to make them come true. So that's kind of where the science really um, promotes the spirituality, which is that it's not about dreaming of some fantasy life and and just waiting and hoping for it to come true. It's about taking agency over your own life and using the power of your brain to make those things come true or at least make them more likely to come true. I wanted it to be really practical. And I did go back and forth on whether there should be lots of exercises throughout the book. But in the end, we decided that, you know, that fourth section should be completely practical. And it's got a chapter on how to make a vision board. It's got particular meditations and visualizations and exercises to overturn that negative gearing of the brain. So, you know, a lot to do with abundance. And I just quite liked the way that if you wanted to, you could just go to the last four chapters and just do the exercises. But if you wanted to read about how the brain unfurls in an embryo and, you know, becomes a baby and then grows throughout adulthood, then you could read that too. You know, I'm the kind of person that reads a book from beginning to end, but I quite liked the fact that it would appeal to people with different types of brains and different attention spans and different interests. So up until the very last moment, there were major changes in the structure of the book, actually.
1: I feel that I want to jump into, I know people are eager to hear a bit of how do we apply this, you know? Um, but before we do that, let's explore how sort of change, change happens in the brain when it's sort of thrust upon us. You've gone through some sort of traumatic experience. I know that a lot of people have been locked out in their homes and, and it hasn't been the ideal conditions. There's been a lot of domestic violence. There's just been so many traumatic people experienced a lot of forced change. And what is sort of the difference between forced change and proactive change in the brain?
0: Well, actually, and this isn't something I've really spoken about before like this, but for me, going through what we're going through now, I've actually experienced the range of forced change and proactive change. So, you know, I had a forced change when I I got divorced and I decided to change career at the same time. So it was very, very stressful. And the main thing to talk about there is the high levels of the stress hormone cortisol. And I'll, I'll talk about what that does to us. Before I started my U.S. book tour, I did a three month resilience program for myself where, you know, I ate really clean. I had like no alcohol or caffeine. I did lots of exercise. I took my supplements. I did all my journaling and meditation because, you know, I was going to be on the road for several weeks, traveling back and forth between the U.K. and the U.S., staying in, you know, unknown places. I was lucky that I got to stay with friends for some of that time. But, you know, I had to mentally prepare myself to be away from my family to Um, you know, to receive praise, which I wanted to stay grounded around, but also potentially to receive criticism. So I, you know, I really prepared myself for that. And it was still super tough. But I know that all the things that I did helped me to navigate the jet lag and the, you know, just all the sort of personal appearances and everything better than I would have otherwise. So what was quite interesting is that within a few months of that kind of, you know, winding down, this crazy thing happened in the world. And even though I, you know, I know that I did a big resilience program last year that I, I know that I can say I went through something that was really challenging. And I feel you know, proud of the way that I managed it. This time in our world now is hard. And, you know, it's hard, even if you've got space in your home and like outdoor space around you, and, you know, some good people around you. But like you said, you know, there's, massive increases in the percentage of domestic violence in every country around the world right now. So um so if you don't have those things if you're in a confined space if you can't get out if you have tension with the people that you're you're in with then of course it's much much harder. And so from the very lowest level because this is something we've never experienced before it's just causing this chronic background stress and that means that the levels of cortisol in our blood are high all the time. And the thing the way that that shows up physically is that it dehydrates our system. So anything from having drier hair, skin and nails to experiencing changes in your digestive system, like, you know, more likely going towards constipation and not, you know, not going to the loo as much as the, the toilet as much as possible, Um, sort of more extreme than that, it can be that your brain gets dehydrated and you're experiencing this terrible brain fog. And it's just 10 times harder to do all of the things that you need to do just to keep the household running and maybe to be able to work from home. And, you know, if you also have to home, homeschool your children, then it's just such a big challenge and it can affect your sleep and it can affect just your health and your energy and your immune system and everything. So there's that going on in the background. Um, and so I've been really careful to say that this isn't a time where we should say, well, maybe we're locked up at home and we're not working, so we could take the time to be super creative or, you know, learn a new language or build up our brand. It's actually the time to embed what i call micro habits which are small things that build up your brain and your you know physical um, performance that you can take with you through you know the rest of this year next year and into your life so if for example you know that you should sleep more than you do then you can start going to bed half an hour earlier if you aren't in a really good habit of drinking water that's something that you can build into your daily routine now because it's a, you know it's a much smaller Sort of structure that you're operating in. If you feel like taking some supplements like probiotics, which are really good for your gut bacteria and they have a direct connection to the intuitive part of the brain, you could start taking some supplements and you could make that a habit so that in two, three, four weeks' time, you know, whether a change is imposed upon you or you choose to make a change after, you know, sort of reflecting on your life, you're just more physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually able to put the energy into doing that in a really positive way.
1: And in terms of, you know, the role of law of attraction and action boards at this moment, how can they play a role? What are some simple uh, ways we can start um, applying the kind of law of attraction?
0: Well, in the laws of attraction, the one that I've placed as number one, and I do actually think is the single most important one, is having abundance in your life. So that starts with your, your thoughts and your subconscious beliefs. And so that isn't something like, you know, Timothy, you're super abundant and I'm not. It's something that we can all build on every day. In the book, what I've tried to do is go through history, through ancient cultures and bring up examples of things of the way that they lived and then back that up with science. So a really simple one is that in um, in Buddhism, there's a teaching which is replace every negative thought immediately with a positive thought. And so if you, if you think about how neuroplasticity works in the brain there are a few mechanisms for building up these these pathways in the brain for the way that we think or you know the job that we do or the skills that we learn and so you can't really undo a certain way of thinking in your brain you have to overwrite it with a new desired way of thinking so actually if you take that ancient eastern philosophy then if you start thinking you know i might lose my job or life's never going to be the same again then you can choose to create a positive affirmation or a mantra that replaces that so that you stop thinking that so much. And you have actually another sentence that you use to think like this is a great opportunity. This is a chance for me to make the change that I've always wanted in my career or something like that. So I think for each person, if there's a particularly negative thought or anxiety that you have that keeps recurring for you, then try to work out what the opposite statement of that is and use that as your own sort of mantra you can use it in you know as a meditation practice or you can just use it when you're feeling when you're feeling down um and then the second part of the laws of attraction which relates to these action boards is manifestation so that's creating in the real world the things that you you know would like to have in your life and Because visual imagery affects our subconscious really strongly, um, I recommend making a collage by hand, although, you know, at the moment that can be a bit trickier. But so you can use um, something like Pinterest or Corculus to create like a pin board on your devices. This can be either just images that you like. I mean, I had created my action board for 2020 in you know, just before the beginning of January. But some of those things, just they're not achievable at the moment because of the situation that we're all in. And so if I do ever get a magazine or, you know, I find some images somewhere on the Internet, I'm just collecting images that I like at the moment. It's really interesting at the moment. My images are all like really vibrant color and very exotic. And, you know, I think oh, I have wow. learning yeah. to sort of trap, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously I'd you know love to be back in South Africa at some point sooner rather than later so I think there's you know I know that that's kind of at the back of my mind but it's about either finding images that just resonate with you or images that represent things that you want in your life so for example when I was writing the book I sort of you know I consciously looked for images that either of a book or a bookshelf or you know a pen or something and I I didn't find anything that I really loved. And then I found this really cute image of like a very old fashioned typewriter. And I just knew that was it. And I had that on the centre of my board for, you know, the year that I was writing. So it's basically about metaphorical or real representations of the things that you want in your life. And the way that it works in the brain is that because we're bombarded with so much information all the time, like, Everyone we see, everyone we speak to, every emotion we experience, every memory we recall, whatever we watch on the TV or look at on the Internet. um, Your brain has to filter some of that stuff out because we can't sort of consciously acknowledge every single thing that we experience, just like, you know, you're not aware of your clothes on your body all day. And so that's called selective filtering. And then there's selective attention, which is you know what we actually notice out of the stuff that's been um, remained after the filtering. And then there's a process in the brain called value tagging, which puts an order of importance the things that we want in our life. Now, if you're rushing around working hard, looking after your family, then you may not have the luxury of thinking about, you know, what you really want in a year's time or five years time. But if you created this board and you keep it in a prominent place, preferably somewhere close to your bed, because the subconscious is most um, open to being primed just before we fall asleep, then you're just more likely to notice and grasp opportunities related to images that are on that board because every day you're reinforcing to your brain these are the things that i want and so when something that resonates with that comes into your real life you're just much more likely to act on it than if you're super busy and distracted and haven't spent any time thinking about it
1: what is something on your uh, action board that we would be surprised to know that it's on there
0: i was waiting for something like this because you always ask me it's like a oh, really <laughs> like out there question um i'm just okay what's a lot there's a lot of stuff on it that's still to do with the book and a tv adaptation of the book and travel probably oh wow maybe something
1: okay
0: yeah um maybe something that you'd find surprising i've got a few quotes on there about things like um if you so one of the quotes is if you really want to fly let go of everything that holds you down So I have a little section on there about making space for the life that I want, because and this really relates back to kind of how we started this conversation, which is it's very easy to be on a certain path. And especially if you're getting lots of people saying, oh, this book's amazing. And, you know, are you going to write another book? And, you know, sort of, you know, just having expectations for you because of things that may be aspirations that people have for themselves. It's very easy to get caught up in that and just keep on that path and not actually sit back and think, well, is this what I really really want? And what really struck me after writing the book is that I wrote about a change that was thrust upon me um years ago. And it's quite easy to write a book looking back and saying, you know, this change was not expected or welcomed, but I made the best of it and now all of these learnings have come out of it and you know all of these sort of other achievements, but If I'm putting this book out into the world and I'm asking people to take agency over their life and make changes that they secretly desire, but maybe haven't been brave enough to do so, then I should also be brave enough to do that. It's not enough to say the books come out and I've got, you know, this business that I created that I love. I should be challenging myself as well, because it comes back to the question that you asked about what's the difference between change that you didn't expect or you didn't want and change that you bring into your life. And the main difference is that you don't have that same level of bad stress associated with the change that you bring into your life. Um, Just before lockdown, I'd started attending a um, history of art course. And, you know, unfortunately, I had to stop doing that. But, um, you know, it sort of made me think about when I was growing up, I didn't have that many choices. I had a very strong expectation from my family to become a doctor, but also I needed a job that would be stable and would, you know, earn me enough money to have a decent life. I didn't have like, you know, wealth or expectation around being looked after in in any way. And I would always have thought somebody that could become an art historian or an actress or a ballerina probably had just, you know, had no financial pressure and could make whatever lovely choices they wanted to make. And so even for me, just being able to do that course just feels like I've worked really hard and I've kind of earned the right to do something that I always thought was a very like luxurious choice. So I'm not saying that I'm going to go off and be an art historian. I'm certainly (laughs) never going to make it as an artist. (laughs) Um, But I just think, you know, all of those sort of things, like one of the things I write about in the book is that because I wasn't good at art at school, I was told from a very young age that I wasn't creative. And I believed that for over two decades. Um, So one of the things I'm really exploring is what does creativity mean? And and, you know, really acknowledging to myself that I am creative in so many ways and there are so many other things that I could have done. And so actually in this enforced lockdown, I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about what what would I do now if I could do anything.
1: And for anyone who's still questioning the power of an action board or a vision board, uh, you're going to find this story really funny. So I received an email a couple of years ago from a young woman who was inviting me. Actually, it was a DM on Facebook. So I received this DM on Facebook from a woman who's trying to invite me to a conference and she'd been trying to reach out to me for a while, but you know, the timing wasn't really aligned, but in her tone, she was quite flirtatious. So I click on the photo and she's very attractive. And so I decided, you know what? I'm single on her profile. It says single. So let me just see what happened. So I say to her, I'm going for a run. I'd love for you to have replied yes to the following. And I type. There is a film festival in the afternoon and there is a, um, a lovely restaurant next to the film festival. I'd love to have a conversation about this conference and get to know you. So I go for a run and I come back and she says, yes. So I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. So we meet, for, we meet for the film festival and we are walking, we leave the film and we're walking to dinner and she stops in the middle of, um, the mall. And she whips out her phone and she says, you have to see my vision board. She Ooh. zooms in and there's a photo of me uh, in an article that I had written uh, for a magazine. No. And then she says, before I left home, I told my boyfriend that I finally get a chance to meet my mentor. <laughs> so oh, no. I thought I was on a date. <laughs> Oh. I thought I was on a date.
0: <laughs> That's so funny.
1: Wait, the story's not over quickly. Then she says, "Okay, yeah, yeah. Would you would you mind if my boyfriend joins us for dinner?" So I end up paying for her and her boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so these vision boys are really powerful.
0: Timothy.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Um, you've actually so reminded you... me of a story, which is that I was staying with my friend judy in new york when my book was coming out in america and she said you know let's go just let's walk around iconic new york places for half a day and i'll take some you know or my nephew will come with us and take some photos of us with the book and everything and at one point we sat sat on the steps of new york public library um and there was a wedding going on behind us so this beautiful you know long train of a white wedding dress as women walking up behind us and we're sitting on the steps I'd already done my photo at Grand Central Station because I have a thing about gossip girls. So this is all very much, you know, dreams come true. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. And,
0: (laughs) um, so I posted that photo on an Instagram story later. It was just a really nice one of me with my friend chatting and she was holding the book and then this beautiful wedding dress in the background. And someone wrote to me and said, someone DM'd me on Instagram and basically said that she had met the man that she'd worked with him at New York Public Library, the man that she wished to marry, that, she had recently started reading my book, and you know started work on her vision board, and decided that, after all these years of being colleagues, she was you know going to try to say something and um hoped that this would become a romantic relationship and She literally said, "As I was sort of thinking of that, you posted this story on instagram, it's at New York Public Library, there's a wedding going on in the background, and you're there, and your friend's holding your book and I've had thousands of messages like that, pictures from people saying." this is where I am on holiday. Look at the picture on my vision board. Um, There's this delightful thing in the UK called the book fairies. So when a new book comes out, they put a little package with the book and, you know, just some little card and they leave them on benches or in public transport around the city. And so the first one of those that I saw, somebody put a thing on Instagram saying I was walking along, um, you know, by the ocean and I saw this package on the, bench I thought somebody must have left it there by mistake and when I looked closer it was a message from the book fairy saying that I've received this free book and you know so she put that on Instagram and she tagged me and it was like a really it was a, you know the first time I got a message about someone receiving the book so I followed her on Instagram and literally like a month later she puts a picture of her left hand with an engagement ring on it and oh um, my you know, goodness finished- <laughs> yeah I know there's just so many things like that and I think I've been doing them for like over 10 years and I've convinced my friends to do the action boards too. And that's what it's worked really well for my friends. You know, I know people who've got engaged, married, pregnant, started their own business. But when you suddenly get thousands of people that you don't know around the world saying that they've read it and they've made an action board and this has come true, it's actually quite mind blowing. Excuse the
1: pun. The last point I would like to say from my side is that you dedicated this book to your husband. And I just thought that was mm. such a redemptive moment that knowing your mm. story and um, I'm sure he must be extremely proud of you as well.
0: Yeah, he is. And I i mean, you know, I wrote that book every weekend for the first year of our married life, um, oh, whilst working wow. full time and traveling to America, traveling to Australia. Um, and, you know, he, he never complained or anything at all. But the day that it came out, actually, it came out on Valentine's Day in the UK. My husband was at work and my stepson walked me to the bookshop to see it on the shelf for the first time. And he had to reach it down for me because it was too high up for me to reach. And he just looked at me and said, all those weekends and now it's in the shop. And it sort of made me realise the impact that it had had on him as well. Um, so, you know, that's really lovely. And they've definitely both been part of the journey. but. Like you said, you know, the story, you know, I've included my own neuroplasticity journey in it, which was, was a sort of very traumatic breakup of the first marriage. Um, so to have come full circle and, you know, found love again, um, was, it was, you know, it was hard work too, because I had to really pick myself up from saying that I would never put myself in a position where I could get hurt like that again to, you know, healing my brain and, Learning ways to be resilient, um, and but yes, I do feel very fortunate that I have um, a partner in that now.
1: Take care of yourself, and hope to have you on again soon.
0: Thank you so much, Timothy.